Our passage today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the hearts. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, we have become, and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the telltale signs um, as to whether you really know someone or not is whether you can get them a gift they do in fact want. Um, Many of us have been in that position, yeah? Uh, Well, in the early throes of dating my wife, Allie, uh, I had that first opportunity to get her a gift for her first birthday. Well, it wasn't her first birthday. That would have been weird. Um, I didn't know her that early. But the first birthday, I knew her. And, uh, and for a guy, there's nothing more stressful. And it may be the same uh, for, for women as well. But I speak from a guy's perspective in a sense here. Um, well, in fully sense. Uh, I, <laughs> we're starting off strong this morning, aren't we? Uh, for a guy, I mean, there's nothing more stressful than getting that first gift, that first birthday gift. Think about it. Because you can, you can go the do-it-yourself route, 
and show her you're creative, right? Show her that she's worth all of your time, or you can go the extravagant route and tell her, hey, I'm financially stable, and uh, you're worth the whole world over, baby. Um, or, or you can even go the romantic route and tell her, I'm emotionally engaged in you, um, and you have my whole heart. Well, I didn't choose any of those paths. Um, I chose a less traveled path, and uh, well, let me just tell you about it. Uh, I, I thought I was really smart. She told me what she wanted maybe a couple weeks before and passing, and we were in Target, trademark, and I thought, man, this is great. I've got the perfect gift. I threw it in a bag delicately, and I couldn't wait for her to look and to see this gift and, and say, oh, my boyfriend, he's so thoughtful. He's engaged in my needs. Well, the day comes, and she opens the bag. It's not very hard because I never wrapped anything. So, you know, she pulls it out of the bag, and I see her face. There it is. This carefully factory-stitched, bleach-white, good old-fashioned pillow, right? Yeah, it was a pillow. It wasn't that extravagant, and and her face was priceless. Uh, The words, despite her best efforts, oh, this is great, um, were really, really painful. And uh, needless to say, the practical route didn't go over very well. Um, But I will say, looking back, it was better than my other idea, which you have to say, wow, that was terrible, whatever the other idea was. It was to get her a toaster. Um, That also would have been awful. Uh, I had no clue. Um, And and we can laugh about it, and we should laugh about it, and I'm finally in the place emotionally where I can laugh about it. Um, But in comparison, or in, in relation to how we engage with God, it's not all that different. It's not all that different. Think about this. What does God want from you? What does God want from you? In our passage that was just read for us, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul reminds us of something we saw last week. He reminds us that for every Christian, no matter where you are in your walk, no matter what stage of influence or level of influence you have in your life, we're all to consider ourselves servants. Look with me in chapter 4. Verse 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, these mysteries of God aren't things that are still unknown. This was hidden throughout history and now revealed. The mysteries of God have been revealed in Jesus, the Christ, who has lived, he has died, and he has rose again. And these mysteries have been revealed in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Christ. And stewards are people who have been given something, And they're supposed to do something with it, okay? That's what a steward is. So as servants, these stewards, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found what? Faithful. Faithful. As servants of Christ, what does God want from you? What does he want from me? Above anything else, God just wants our faithfulness. God just wants your faithfulness. More than a picture-perfect marriage, more than the most ideal singleness, more than the most established children, more than a job that rakes in all the cash, more than an education that makes you look really smart, more than anything else, above anything else, God just wants your faithfulness. And at face value, faithfulness seems pretty straightforward, right? It's kind of got three components. Um, Listen to what God says. Try to. Try to understand what God is saying. And then thirdly, of course, seek to do what you understood that God had said. Um, And in one sense, faithfulness is never less than this. But in another, it's so much more. We can hear about faithfulness 
and it sounds admirable. We can see faithfulness and it looks beautiful. And yet in another very real respect, faithfulness can feel backward. It can feel unconventional. It makes sense, but it isn't natural. And that's why even in our culture, we have things called contracts to enforce faithfulness in business dealings and otherwise. Or in marriage, we have vows, promises to help secure faithfulness. So if above anything else, God just wants your faithfulness, what does faithfulness mean? Anyway, what's faithfulness mean? Well, today we're going to continue our journey through this little letter called 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul to an early church plant in the urban center of Corinth in the first century. Um, This little church plant, it's best described, I think, as a beautiful mess. They got a lot of things that are broken, that are going on in their community, and yet they're still beautiful. They're still God's people. And, and, And that's why we even call our series A Beautiful Mess as we're walking through this letter. What's so amazing about this church is they miss it big time with God. They miss completely what God wants for them. And yet God, he still wants them, and he's still pursuing them And they become a picture of hope for all of us who frequently miss what God wants for us and from us in our lives. They're the kind of Christians that we can all relate with, the kind of people that in the most significant of ways aren't all that different from us. So in our passage this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to walk through and we're going to see how faithfulness means three things. Living before one audience, how it means redefining success, And then thirdly, following the right examples. Faithfulness means living before one audience, redefining success, and following the right examples. So first, if above anything else, God just wants your faithfulness, Paul wants us to know that faithfulness means living before one audience. Look with me at chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But with me, Paul speaking of himself, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you, Or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, as a servant, Paul's only concerned with one audience. He's concerned with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find one of the most interesting paradoxes in the Christian faith here. For in faithfulness, we find freedom. In focused commitment, we find freedom from the enslaving opinion or approval of others. Now, for some of us, just by hearing the phrase approval of others, a particular someone popped into your mind. Someone you are wanting to impress, someone you're longing and desperately hoping to win their approval. And we slide so easily into this enslaving reality. Well, in the American Idol of life, okay, Jesus is the only one on the other side of the judge table. And everyone else is in line. Everyone else. So when we finally take the trust and place ourselves under the loving authority of Jesus Christ, we can put to rest all those tiring mind games we're playing to constantly calculate our activities and our words in order to win approval from parents, to win approval from your boss, to win approval from friends, from family members, from neighbors. They can slowly enslave and destroy you. Now, to be clear, what Paul is saying is that at the end of the day, look, my life doesn't depend upon what you think of me. He's saying that very clear here. 
But what he isn't saying and what sometimes we think Paul is saying here is, you Corinthians, your opinion of me has no meaning. And this, this can come across with deep arrogance when we say, I don't care what you think of me, period, when it's because you're looking down at someone. You're constantly seeing them as a loser, as an idiot. You're seeing yourself as superior and saying there's no way you have anything to say because you're an idiot. Now, in college, in college, I had this breakthrough, at least I thought so, in personal maturity. Um, and I broke through some of my own barriers of low self-esteem. But how I did it, how I did it was I became cynical and I put other people down. It was all about destroying other people rather than seeing who God had actually made me to be. Whereas with Paul, with Paul, when he's telling the Corinthians, hey, it's a little thing when you judge me. It's not all that big of a deal when you have misperceptions about me. What he isn't saying is, I have a really low view of you, Corinthians. What he is saying is, I have a huge and very high view of God. There's a distinction there. Do you see the difference? And he has such a high view of God and such a high view of the Lord Jesus that it even brings his own preferences and his own feelings into check. He's freed from the enslaving approval of others and then he's even freed from the enslaving approval of himself. You see, Paul even here in verse three says, in fact, I don't even judge, I don't even judge myself because we know some of the most grueling and intense taskmasters are actually our own expectations, our own aspirations, our own goals. Yeah, sure, I may not care about what anybody else thinks, but man, my own expectations? I thought I'd be so much further by now. Man, I can't believe I did that. I don't care what anybody else thinks of me, but I feel like a failure. And we can be some of the most grueling taskmasters of our own reality. And, and here's the deal. If we fail those ambitions, if we fail those goals and those expectations, or at least feel like we failed those expectations and goals, whether our feelings are accurate with reality or not, they're not always lining up with what's really happening, then no matter what anybody else says around us, we're going to find ourselves enslaved in our own despair, and nobody else can get us out of that. On the other end of the spectrum, if we do exceed and reach our expectations, our goals, and our aspirations, or at least we feel like we reach our expectations, our goals, and aspirations, once again, feelings may not line up with reality, then no matter what anybody else says around us, they can't deliver us from our enslavement of arrogance. That can be just as destructive. Paul sees faithfulness to mean it transforms our reality. Living before one audience, and you were never designed. I was never designed to be our own audience. We can't be our own audience, our single audience, which is why when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, this is what Paul says. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, things that are going on in the recesses of our personality, in the depths of our soul, that we may think are good, but God is the ultimate judge and he may say is broken. There may be things going on in the recesses of our heart that we think are broken and we're skewed because of our history and experiences growing up, but God actually says, no, this is good. This is for your good. And so at the end of the day, in verse 5, then each one will receive his commendation, his praise from who? From my own conscience? From my mentor? From my friends? No, from God. At the end of the day, it's from God. 
And the Christian is given a framework to finally rest in God's final say. Not all the onlookers along the sides, everybody else waiting in line with you, and not even your own conscience that may be twisted from trauma growing up or inflated from privilege growing up. When I got Allie that pillow for her gift, I wasn't satisfied with just me wanting her to want it. My own conscience wasn't the ultimate judge. I wanted her to want it. I wasn't satisfied when my buddy Tim said, yeah, dude, she'll love it. You know, I wanted my wife, Allie, well, now my wife, then my girlfriend, to really want it. She was the only audience I really cared about. At the end of the day, above everything else, God just wants your faithfulness. And faithfulness means living before one audience. So let me ask you this morning, whose approval are you living for? Whose approval are you living for? We're all living for someone's approval. We wrestle through this, and sometimes it's even hard to be honest with ourselves on whose approval we're seeking. Is it a, a mentor, a parent, a coworker, your own ideals? Whose approval are you living for? And Pastor Tim Keller, he has really great help and insight here as we start thinking about this wrestlings with approval. And in his book, Gospel and Life, he writes, when, when you make approval an idol— your greatest fear will be rejection. People around you will often feel smothered and you will regularly struggle with cowardice. You will regularly struggle with cowardice. Who are you terrified of being rejected by? Who are you terrified of being rejected by? Who do you smother with your time? They're, they're kind of saying, okay, this is great. I'd, I'd love for you to come over, but maybe, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> Who are you smothering with your time? Or who are you afraid to fail or afraid to confront for the fear that you might lose them or lose their approval? You see, it's only in the gospel that we're freed to finally live before one audience. And theologian Os Guinness, he elaborates this a little bit further in his book, The Call, when he writes, living before the one or the audience of one transforms our endeavors. That's why Christ-centered heroism doesn't need to be noticed or publicized. The greatest deeds are done before the audience of one, and that's enough. Isn't that what we want? Finally, enough. Those who are seen and sung by the audience of one can afford to be careless about lesser audiences. And I love that last line. Um, Because we long to live before one audience, an audience of one that liberates us from the judgment of the lesser audiences, the innumerable lesser audiences that surround us in the various spheres of influence that we find ourselves. The fear of rejection. But in the gospel, we're freed. We're freed to finally love people courageously for their good. Rather than living our lives in cowardice, calculating our actions so that we can receive the approval we so desperately need from other people. See, if the gospel does free us and we live before the audience of one, then courageous love says, I'm going to pull together the intervention. I'm going to fight for the friend even if it costs me my friendship because I love you that much. You may hate that I'm going to talk to you about this, but if you keep going down this path, it's going to destroy you. And if you lose the friendship, because you had to speak truth to that friend for the good of that friend, it's okay because you're not living for that audience. You're living for the audience of one for the good of others. You see how that transforms your interactions with everybody else around you? Above anything else, God just wants your faithfulness for your good and for your freedom. 
And faithfulness means living before one audience. Whose approval are you living for? That may take prayer. That may take contemplation and reflection outside of here this morning. I encourage you to wrestle through that question. But faithfulness still means more. Paul wants to show us as well that faithfulness means redefining success. Faithfulness means redefining success. Who here doesn't want a successful single life, a successful marriage, successful children? Who doesn't want a successful Christian walk or a church? Who doesn't want a successful budget plan or project at work that contributes to a successful career? We all want those things, right? Anybody who says they don't want those things, let's be real, okay? Um, And what the Corinthians are saying is that, hey, we found the secret to success. And they're beginning to boast in their accomplishments. And Paul says, just simply, hey, you guys aren't that special, okay? He kind of confronts them. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In other words, if there's anything good going on in your faith community, it's not because you're smarter it's not because you're more spiritually mature or morally upright. That'd be kind of like, if we turn the tables here just a little bit, it'd be like if Allie got me a wardrobe, a new wardrobe, for uh, my, my birthday, and then I went around boasting to everybody about how I had really good fashion sense. <laughs> that seems ridiculous, right? Because it had nothing to do with me, and that's what the Corinthians are doing. They've been giving such amazing gifts in God, and then they're boasting as if they've figured this all out. Paul doesn't pull any punches. And so Paul actually gets even more intense in the next verse, in verse 8. And he gets a little sarcastic, hammering home the point that the Corinthians don't even know what success really looks like. Look at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. Now, if you aren't familiar with Paul, that verse can seem really weird trying to figure out what Paul is saying. But the more you get to know Paul, that he every once in a while will come with a tool of sarcasm, then it starts to make sense. Paul is painting a picture of what the, ex, the, uh, what the Corinthians are saying about themselves. He's like, do you really see what you're saying about yourselves? How arrogant that is? You feel like you've arrived? Let me, let me paint how ridiculous this picture is. And it's kind of like Paul is saying, well, it seems like you guys have arrived Um, And you don't need us anymore? Congratulations. End with a slow clap, right? Um, It becomes this intense sarcasm to say, do you really see yourselves? And the irony becomes especially thick when Paul paints his second picture up against the Corinthians, a picture of his own life, a picture of his own ministry, hardships, and suffering. Look with me now at verses 9 through 13. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles... As last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a skeptic or spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we're in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You see the difference in these two pictures? 
It's pretty drastic. The Corinthians are seeking to define success with worldly standards. They want to be seen as wise, strong, and honorable, and they're boasting as if they are. And so when they look at Paul, in another scenario, in another a book, he writes about his hardships, shipwrecks, being beaten and stoned and disregarded. Well, from the worldly standards, if you look at the Apostle Paul, man, everybody starts asking the question, hey, Paul, are you doing the right things? Did you happen to get into the wrong vocation here? Um, you seem kind of like a failure. And what Paul wants us to know is that faithfulness means redefining success. In the Christian faith, what we actually see is that success, it takes the shape of the cross and many times from the rest of the world can look like failure. Look again at some of these terms that Paul is applying to himself and the other apostolic leaders in the church in those verses again. He says they're like men sentenced to death. They're a spectacle to the world. They're fools. They're weak. They're in disrepute. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're poorly dressed. I feel like that. Buffeted and homeless, not because of bad clothes, but just bad style. And we labor, working with our own hands, reviled, persecuted, slandered. Scum of the world, refuse of all things. The distinction, is, <laughs> it's absolutely brutal that Paul's trying to paint here. And we can all admit that no one wants to be labeled as weak, pathetic, or rejected. And yet when you come to Jesus, the people he says are blessed, are defined with these categories in his most famous Sermon on the Mount. Nobody wants to be despised and ridiculed, and yet that's exactly how the success of the world treated Jesus the Christ when they crucified him, and all the followers of Jesus as they took the path of the cross thereafter. You see, above anything else, God just wants your faithfulness, and faithfulness means redefining success, and so I want to ask us the question this morning, how do you define success? What does success look like? What dictionaries are you using? GQ, Lifetime, the Wall Street Journal, family history, family expectations. For many of us, we can fall into the perception that the Christian faith is actually the pathway to worldly success, and it comes with ease and comfort. And in one sense, it does. But when suffering, hardship, and pain enter our life, we start waving a flag and saying, hey, I was following Jesus. Why aren't you protecting me from this pain? What's going on? And that's because the Christian life, faithfulness, actually redefines success with the cross, where the last are made first. The first are made last. The greatest of leaders are called to be the greatest of servants. The greatest of servants are called to be the greatest of leaders. Jesus says, come and die, and then you'll find life. It's an upside-down world in a sense except for really Jesus is turning it right side up. And so when we come to pain in our life, and when we look actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we saw earlier in our series that God uses those moments of weakness, those moments of shame, those moments of pain and sorrow, and he actually uses those to accomplish his good purposes for our good and his glory. You see, we weren't called. Success for God isn't pulling us away from pain. Not yet. There will be a day that's coming where he will wipe every tear from our eye and pain will be no more. It will be glorious and we will celebrate God and his goodness for eternity. But now, 
the Christian life isn't isolating us from pain. But instead, God works through our pain and our suffering in the same way that Paul describes here in chapter 4, to make us a spectacle to the world of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Such that, as Paul describes himself, we see our own vocation here. That when we're reviled, we bless like our master Jesus blessed. When persecuted, we endure like our master Jesus endured. When slandered, we entreat like our master Jesus did. So that when pain and suffering enter our lives, the world can actually see Jesus in our actions and not just hear him in our answers. You see, the world's success, if that's really what you want, the tools of the world are aptly available. Such that when you, um, when you are reviled, you can revile in return. When you are persecuted, you can fight back. When you're slandered, you can bring back a hellfire retort, right? But you're going to alienate the very people you're called to love, your neighbors and even your enemies. And you won't reflect Jesus Christ and him crucified, but you're pursuing once again worldly success. Above anything else, God just wants your faithfulness. And faithfulness calls us, it redefines success through the cross. And the rest of the world will say, hey, that is foolish. Put your dukes up. Come on, don't be a doormat. And in a very real sense, we're called to come and die. Success is totally redefined. How do you define success? But still we're not done with understanding what faithfulness means. And to look and understand more, let's look at verses 14 through 16. I don't write these things to make you ashamed. He's put up these two pictures, remember, and they're drastically different between the way the Corinthians are seeing themselves and the way Paul says success is defined by the cross. I don't do this to make you feel ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For through, or for though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Just to recap, Paul's just told these Corinthian Christians, I don't care what you think of me, <laughs> and I'm going to spend a couple minutes being sarcastic, and now I'm going to command you to do what I do. And if you go to a chapter 11, verse 1, Paul actually goes even further and says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's pretty intense, isn't it? And in this command, one of two things could be true. This could either be the height of arrogance, or we could actually be seeing a great and profound and challenging reality of Christian faithfulness. If you scour the pages of Scripture, you'll find it's definitely the latter. This is a huge insight. The Christian life, it isn't about just precepts, but about practices. And above anything else, God just wants your faithfulness, and faithfulness means following the right examples. Faithfulness means following the right examples. The Christian life isn't just about Bible information, but about gospel transformation. Christian life isn't just about the wits, what we understand, but it's a matter of the will, what we decide and do. And Paul wants us to know that we need to be very intentionally engaged in community, discerning, and following the right examples. Men and women who are ahead of us in the journey, godly leaders that you can now follow as they, they epitomize and they show what it means to allow the gospel to transform their lives. Now, if you've been going with us through 1 Corinthians, you may say, wait a second, 
this seems really backwards because just last chapter, chapter 3, Paul rebukes the Corinthian Christians for following particular leaders. I mean, in the community, they're saying, hey, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow this guy named Cephas, and the community is being fragmented because of this. So what's Paul doing? What Paul's seeking to do is actually reframe what it means to follow well. Reframe what it means to follow well. You see, what we have here in our passage is a matter of motive, not method. A matter of motive, not method. Earlier, the Corinthian Christians were picking and choosing particular leaders that they were going to follow in order to make themselves look important. Their motive was to continue to spur on and get the approval of onlookers, to bask in the glory of these special celebrity leaders. What Paul is saying, though, is drastically different. I want you to live before one audience. I want you to redefine success as through the cross. And then I want you to find leaders in your midst who are doing that and follow them, learn from them, grow from them in order to grow in faithfulness. Not about winning approval, not about making yourself more important, but growing in faithfulness before one audience redefined by the cross. You see, it's a small distinction between motive and method. He's affirming the method, critiquing the motive. And this makes a world, a world of difference. The Corinthians, they have all these guides we see right there in verse 15. And yet they're leading them astray. And Paul's not ticked at them, but he's definitely disappointed in the way his kids are acting. And it sounds funny for Paul to say, hey, I'm your father. (laughs) It's like, wait, is this Star Wars? What's going on? No, but what's happening here is Paul uses this metaphor. He uses this this paternal or, uh, yeah, paternal metaphor um, to describe his leadership over the churches he helped birth, the churches he helped start. And sometimes he uses paternal language as he's thinking of leadership. Sometimes he uses maternal language in terms of nurturing the community. The paternal language he usually uses for disciplining and teaching. It's just the way he uses these different metaphors of parenting over this community. And, and as the father of this little church plant, they should look like him. Children look like their parents. It's the way it kind of works out. But they don't. And so the Apostle Paul says, hey, I'm going to send your older brother, Timothy, to be a proximate example as to what it looks like to live out the gospel. This is so important. In this passage, I find an undeniable apologetic for the church. We were never designed to live our Christian lives alone, but instead be in an intentional community where we're discerning what are the right leaders we should be following and then connect with them and stick with them and live life together with them. And so I want to ask us the question this morning, who are you following? Who are you following? We all have those people, whether we know it or not, that we're patterning our lives after. People that are in our sphere of influence, people who are in the magazines that we read every week or on the blogs that we subscribe to. Who are you following? And are they the kind of people that you should be following? So we got to do a little bit of discerning work here. Why are you following them? Is it to make yourself look more important because some of these goals and ambitions you have or is it to grow in faithfulness? 
What is it about them that's desirable? What is it about them that's admirable that you say, okay, I want to be like them. I'm going to wear their clothes or I'm going to act this way in a relationship like they would act. What is it about their personality, their trajectory, their accomplishments that draws you in and says, I want to follow that person? And maybe to help us even further to discern that is to say, who are they following? Who are they following? Are they the kind of people who, like the Apostle Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ? His ultimate trajectory is to say, okay, your final stopping point isn't me. If you're following me, I'm going to actually be pointing you further. If you're following someone and their stopping point is themselves, that's a red flag. Be aware. Who are you following? I know for me, one of the people that I follow is our Olathe campus pastor, Nathan Miller. Um, he has the freedom to challenge my schedule. I kind of let him say, look at my calendar from time and again and say, hey, am I, am I doing okay here? Um, I, I watch his habits. I see his rhythms. He's been a pastor longer than I have. He's got a passion for Christ and to make the gospel known. And I, and I ask him on a regular basis, how am I doing? He asks me, are you loving your wife well? You know, uh, are you caring for your church? Are you in the Bible yourself, not just preaching it, but are you in the Bible? He asks these thought-provoking questions. And I'm so thankful for Nathan and his work in my life and laying out rhythms on what it means to be a pastor over a campus and still be a faithful and loving husband and father and sustainable rhythms for the long haul, not just this short sprint as a pastor and then burn out. But how do we, how do, we do this for the long haul? And I'm thankful for Nathan. He's, he's not perfect, but he models gospel repentance. He's told me, hey, I was wrong there. I'm sorry. I sinned. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that to you. Please forgive me, right? He's modeling gospel repentance. I'm thankful for him because not because he is Jesus, because he constantly is pointing me to Christ. And I sent him this email earlier this week, said, hey, can I use this? And his response was, I'm humbled. I can't believe you'd use me in your sermon. Like, that's the kind of person I want to follow. That's the kind of person I want to learn. And for you, be thinking, is it someone in your community group? Is there someone in your sphere of influence? Is it another Christian leader, a pastor? Is there a vocational leader who's in your sphere of influence, who's following Jesus and living out their vocation well as an architect, as an 